Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The LitFest salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There is food, drink, and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 8, 2013, the topic of the salon was That's Not Funny, How Far Is Too Far? The panel featured author Steve Almond and Denver-based comedians Christine Letterman and Troy Walker. Welcome, everyone, to our first LitFest Salon. Our idea for the LitFest Salons, for those of you who are new, how many of you are new? Oh, a good number. Our idea is to get together people who, who possibly don't even know each other. <laughs> and don't know us. And, and talk about something provocative in the most inflammatory way possible. Um, did, you guys, did I tell you guys that? No. Um, so tonight's topic is, that's not funny. It's not funny. And it's really not. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's worse than hearing, I'm not mad at you, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I mean, isn't it? That's not funny. It stings in this kind of collective unconscious way. So um, I have no idea what these guys are going to talk about. The person who put this together is Jenny Taylor Whitehorn, and I'm a little concerned that the minute she put it together, she packed up her house and her dogs and her husband and went to Seattle. Um, And I didn't even have anybody's email address, right? I mean, they they had to call and say, am I doing something at LitFest? I was like, yeah, I was totally on top of it. Um, And tonight, that's not funny, we've got Steve Almond, we've got Christine Letterman, we've got, is it Lederman or Letterman? Letterman. And Troy Walker. I I know. Don't say we don't get people, because we get people. And I'm going to read their quick bios, and then they're going to take over, and and then you guys are going to be involved. So this is, you're all implicated in this. Um, Steve Allman is the author of 10 books of fiction and nonfiction, most recently the story collection, God Bless America. Allman's second book, Candy Freak, was a New York Times bestseller and won the ALA's Alex Award. Yay. <laughs> and the Book Sense Nonfiction Book of the Year. Um, Christine Letterman is a Denver stand-up comic and voiceover artist who's been a comedy staff writer for DreamWorks. And Imagine Entertainment. Dang. Um, A Los Angeles native, she has an extensive background in improv as a performer with the Groundlings and has a recurring sketch show in L.A. That's awesome. Um, Troy Walker is a Denver native who started doing stand-up comedy six years ago. He's a regular at Comedy Works and has been invited to various comedy festivals around the country. And I happen to know he's also a lawyer. And I want to say on that note... Lighthouse does not necessarily endorse or find funny everything that's going to happen tonight. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys because you probably have stuff to say about what's funny and what's not funny, um, what that line is, where it's movable, where you just can't move it. Does anybody want to be first? Steve does. does. 
He's already warmed up. Okay. Either clap like you mean it, or just don't clap. Um, well, so the first thing I'll say is that people pretty much decide what they think is funny or not funny, and you can't argue with them. It's just like saying, oh, you don't really like coconut. It's like, fuck you. It's my mouth. I like what I like, period. So comic sensibility is one of those things that, you know, everybody has a different thing that they respond to or set of things. But I do think there's some kind of laws that govern when, so, why something is funny. And I, th- I think they kind of a- apply across the board. I think something's funny because it um, is true and because the velocity of insight into that truth exceeds our normal expectations. Like when a stand-up comic is funny, it's because what they're saying you intuitively recognize as right, but they just fucking get right to it much more quickly than you and much more candidly than you're accustomed to and you react with a kind of relief that we all share the same fucked up embarrassing foibles or observe them and also a sense of gratitude that they're the person saying it and relief I'm not totally crazy Uh, and I think also and this is where it's tricky to sort of say what's not funny I think the comic impulse is a radical impulse. It's transgressive. It's about saying things that you don't say in polite company, but which are the truth. So it seems very, like I can think of the one era when it was not cool to try to make jokes. When was that in our recent history? After 9-11. Nobody made any fucking jokes. Nobody joke. We were a country of self-pity and sanctimony and let's get our fucking war on. That's what happened. And if you and I'm gonna piss some people off, but that Andrea asked me to. Yes. <laughs> if you think about what the extreme right wing in this country is and what they're about, they are if there is a, a comic impulse in them, it is one that is about revenge and grievance. It is not about forgiveness, which is, I think, where great comedy comes from. It's an impulse to forgive yourself and forgive the world for its the bad stuff that we contend with. But I think of the extreme right as almost entirely without a real genuine comic impulse, because what they deal in is moral surety. They cannot handle any kind of doubt or uncertainty. And comedy comes from the stuff that we share that we're completely uncertain and confused and in a state of doubt about. So when I think about when the country has had a really hair-trigger sense of, oh, that's not funny, that's actually when you're on your way to fascism. And the only people who actually get to react to that are the fools. If you think about the historical figure who actually spoke out against fascism when it was first happening in Europe, the only American mass media figure who was talking about fascism and calling it out and saying, you know, over in Europe, they're turning human beings into killing machines, was who? Chaplin in 1940, before we were even at war with Germany. Pearl Harbor hasn't happened. So I get very, like, my, I get my hackles up when people say, oh, there are things that just go beyond the line. I think if it's in the service of the truth... And it's not meant to, it's not seeking revenge and mean-spirited. It's all fair 
it's all uh, um, fair play, fair game, whatever the expression is that I can no longer locate. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ditto that. <laughs> That's efficiency. Yes. <laughs> well, we all have different senses of humors, and we all think different things are funny. So when I do stand-up, almost every show is different. Some people laugh at different things, and others don't. And the bottom line is, some people always get offended, and it's always funny when it's not you. <laughs> but then things change quickly when it is you. Um, when I was at the Groundlings, I had written a sketch about Ebonics. This was back in the 90s when uh, we were going to have Ebonics taught as a language in Oakland. So I had spoofed the Oakland school teachers because it was so funny to just have these right-winged white women teaching Ebonics. And I very much offended two African Americans in the audience that had written this. Sorry, Troy. No. <laughs> He's already offended. <laughs> but the sketch went well, but just seeing that letters, we got these awful letters. The girl that was with me in the sketch is Heather McDonald. She's on um, Chelsea Lately right now. And we were so afraid of these letters. And they'd written the board of the groundlings and you name it just to stop this. And sure, Ebonics is uh, it's it's just slang. It's uh, African American slang, and I can't even think of a good example of of a word of Ebonics. But they but they use different words to describe things, um, like gang codes. But in Ebonics, he's like, no, give me one. You're black. No. Okay. Forget it. Do you have one that you can think of? I know. What do you mean you don't know? We did all sorts of weird stuff. I'm not giving because I can't. I don't want to say I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. P-H-A-T. But it was a great lesson just to realize no matter what, we are always going to offend somebody. And I have my own set rules. Like, I don't, I don't think cancer is funny at all when anyone talks about it. I think almost everybody's been affected by it. But maybe some people do. And um, when I was in improv, we, we had our rules like, don't. Don't be crazy. Don't talk about AIDS. Don't talk about cancer. And don't talk about pedophiles. That was our main rules on stage for the funniness. <laughs> now that I do stand-up, <laughs> those rules have completely changed. And I hear it in all the shows from different comics. There's always jokes of every kind. There's jokes about rape. There's jokes about this. And some people love it and some people don't. But um. I've always, always, been, since I was a little girl, everything was funny to me when it wasn't supposed to be. I always was always the one that was laughing or that, that saw funny things when you were not supposed to laugh, like in church. Not that I went to church. I am a Jew. But please don't laugh at that. Jew church. Jew church. <laughs> um, and like just recently, I was at a funeral. Um, my boyfriend's one of my boyfriend's family members had passed away and I had met his parents for the first time 
and everybody was just crying. And his father walks out of the bathroom with his zipper completely undone, the pants wide open, and these polka dot boxers. And I just lost it. And I was pinching myself, doing everything you can. Just, it's one of those moments where you don't want to laugh, but you can't help it. And that's what makes it probably even funnier. And I'm going to pass it over to Troy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm going to just say that, to me, you know, everybody kind of draws their own lines. But just because you don't think something's funny doesn't mean it isn't. It just means you don't think it's funny. And as far as a comic, I mean, there's certain comics that really like to push it. I'm not one. You know, my act is adorable. But, like, <laughs> my act's... My act's real cute. Uh, but there's other comics. Like, I watched Dave Attell is out at the South Club this weekend, and I watched him last night. And it is ridiculously offensive, but it's so funny. It's like the best thing ever. I'm probably going to go watch him again tonight after, uh, after I leave here. But it's really, really fun. But he even prefaces some of his stuff by saying, like, this is not for everybody because it is so far. But that's part of what... Comedy kind of needs to have an edge anyway. It just kind of needs that. Um, but I definitely think that it's sort of a thing where you draw your own lines as a performer, like Christine was saying. I definitely, like, I've never written a rape joke. I've never written, um, you know, I never wrote a 9-11 joke or a national tragedy joke. But I know a lot of people who have a ton of them. And it's not that they're not funny jokes. It's just stuff I don't write. Um, it's not that I didn't think they were funny. It was just, it's just stuff I was uncomfortable writing for whatever reason I was uncomfortable writing it. Um, be it that, you know, I, I, I think about what, how that might affect somebody in the audience. I want everybody to have fun, whatever, you know? Uh, so I kind of think it's a thing where you kind of have to think about what your perception of what funny is as your perception of what funny is. And there's no firm set rule about like, well, this is funny or this is too far. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's true. I don't think that could ever really be true because anything can be funny. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Who? Oh, Muhammad the yeah. prophet. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, will, I definitely want to get into this argument, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, it's not funny for them. Right, and and it would be a situation where. I'm, you know, the, the, they think it's so not funny that your life might be in danger. <laughs> so, I mean, y- you know, th- then most comedians would say, okay, not probably not worth the laugh on that one. I mean, it was awfully cute and funny. But it, it is related to this idea I was talking about with 9-11, when you have a culture that is so deeply grounded in kind of the shame culture idea that if you if there's any attempt at levity anything other than the utmost devout fundamentalist respect for you're on a death list or you know you're, you're then you're moving into a culture that I def, I don't not want to hang out with those people 
They are not the fun people at the party. Um, they are definitely the best armed. And I probably want to like cozy up to them at the end times. Uh, I'm thinking about like you're like the comedians that I love the most and I'll name two that probably people will know so Louis C.K. is extraordinarily funny but if you think about his comedy it's mostly about self-loathing it's mostly about how much he hates himself and how disappointed he is in an ongoing way with himself in almost every moment or occasion and what an idiotic provincial racist he is and a helpless parent and everything and for reasons that I think will become apparent if we spend any time together I totally identify with that (laughs) so he's a guy who's aiming the you know gun back at himself and that's a way that you know I most of my comic nonfiction operates in that way I'm mostly saying see what an idiot I was um but then another comedian who is like maybe my favorite comedian of all time is a guy named Bill Hicks. And Bill Hicks never was on Letterman or, um, you know, whatever, the other late night shows. He never broke big because he was so radical and transgressive and subversive. He would say, okay, you want to know what I think about gay marriage? No, no, no. We don't know what I think about gays in the military. Here's what I think. If you're fucking stupid enough to go into the military, I don't give a shit who you fuck. What, that's not what he said much funnier than that but that's the basic that's, that's the line that he's drawing like who, how could you possibly be morally sanctimonious when you are paid to kill people okay now you laugh but everybody else oh shit Almond's talking some anti-military shit now we're in Colorado now that's purple son you're not in Massachusetts okay and the reason I like Hicks is because, you know, and I, I wrote a piece, a long piece about The Daily Show. Like, I think John Stewart's brilliant, and I think he's really funny, and I think he's great therapy for all of us who look at the media and uh, political class in this country and go, we are fucked. Everything is hopelessly broken. We are destroying our country, empire, species. Oh, but at least Jon Stewart is going to make me feel that somebody gets how fucked up it all is and is going to get a laugh out of it. And as much as I respect him and want to watch him, I don't want to feel therapized about the, the horror of our, what's happening in our political and media worlds. That's a deeply tragic and enraging thing. So I like the Bill Hicks approach, which is basically making his audience feel uncomfortable rather than making them feel we're all in this together. And so, you know, Stewart really is about that. He's about not pushing too far. And if you go back and look, as I did, at what he had to say after 9-11, it was more or less what George Bush had to say. It was a kind of knee-jerk, now is the time for us all to come together, and I can see the Statue of Liberty, and I'm going, you know, actually... There's a whole history that led to that attack. It's terrible murder by crazy guys. Nobody's going to argue that. But there was a whole larger context that led up to that. And smart satirists through time, whether it's Aristophanes or Jonathan Swift or Bill Hicks, are examining how we got to that point. Not just saying, well, now is not a time for jokes. We just uh, now is a time for us to nationally mourn and all the rest of that. Uh, so I actually am for the comedians who 
um, if, if they're speaking truthfully, who are going to make the audience feel a little bit uneasy. I think that's part of the purpose. That's what the role of comedy has been historically. The fool gets to speak the truth to the king. That's the fool's job, right? Um, you know, Richard Pryor was talking much more pointedly about race before anybody was, and Cosby, for that matter. Uh, not on the show, not on the CBS show, but in his act. So, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Hello, I'm back. <laughs> um, and with that said, I, I, is there a lot of comedy writers here in the audience? Okay. <laughs> You're alone. Well, that's funny. <laughs> what? Good. Bye. Suddenly, it's Mr. Hall. You <laughs> <laughs> we were so good before that nonsense. I like how you get up at people's grill and you do a great job. And I like that. One of the things I noticed about contemporary comedy is it tends to be the inappropriate comment at the appropriate time. Or it tends to be something very arched and really extreme. It's not anymore set up, set up, punchline. Right. And I, I think for those of us who are writing, it, that's kind of, in a sense, it's kind of hard because it kind of takes a point of view. You have, would you not say that it's about point of view? Yeah. Well, yeah, like Louis C.K., most of the, yeah, and I tell all these guys are, they aren't doing ba-boom, it's not a rim shot. They are telling, is that, is that a dirty slang? I think that's dirty slang. I, I'm, my aphorisms are all fucked up. Uh, rim job. Thank you. Let's just move right on. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. These are guys who are who are const- uh, really speaking from a persona, and they're telling little stories. It's storytelling. It's not joke, set up joke, right? right. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, for those of us who are not necessarily comedy writers, but are looking for to bring humor and comedy into our work, how would you suggest approaching that since it's not... Set up, set up joke. Right. Well, I'll answer, but these guys also write comedy and write comic stuff, so they can answer too. The central thing is that the comic impulse arises from feelings states that are tragic. Comedy is not the opposite of tragedy. Comedy is the byproduct of tragedy. Every joke that you laugh at, if you look at it on paper, is something sad shameful, embarrassing, uh, 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 something that would create moral outrage in you. That's what jokes are. They are predicated on. They're the, they're, they, and, and so the, re, the way to be funny in your work is not to set out to be funny. In fact, if you say to somebody, oh my God, dude, this is a really funny story, you're going to love it. Like No comic would ever say that because your audience is then leaning against you going, yeah, prove it, asshole. The way that uh, a sense of humor comes into your work is, I think, as, a, as the residue of a, the dogged pursuit of truth. If you truly are honest about how completely depraved and lonely and sick and horny and everything else you are, the only way to actually honestly talk about that is that your sense of humor has to swoop in. Because otherwise, you would just kill yourselves. 
the, uh, your sense of humor isn't uh, like something in your writer's toolbox. It's a bioevolutionary adaptation that you developed in order to survive the horror of the Serengeti or, in modern times, the horror of your family. That's where your sense of humor comes from, is surviving with people who are fucking crazy and who want to kill you, your family, or they want to drive you to kill yourself. And that's where all, like Vonnegut, that's, that's when he became Vonnegut, when he realized that his voice wasn't the guy he was trying to write like Hemingway. He was the youngest kid at the table of a bunch of suicides trying to have a voice. And you know the only way he could do that was by making jokes, to try to speak about the truth without actually you know, pushing his mother over the edge. So uh, if people set out to be funny, I think it's doomed. I really do. But if you, if you want to allow the comic impulse into your work, you just have to relax. You have to go after the truth and allow your, allow your sense of humor, which you all have. It's not like there's some people who have a sense of humor in the audience and some people who don't. You all have it. It's a matter of whether you let it onto the page. And I find it is released when you, as a way of trying to get at some of the darkest shit that's inside you that it naturally arises in my work because otherwise I couldn't tell the story. It's like how I forgive myself for what an idiot I've been or how pissed off I am about X, Y, or Z. And I definitely go by the rule of don't try to be funny. Um, Just like throwing out punchlines, this is a lot for writing. It just, it stops everything and all your information will be lost. When I first started writing comedy, I was not very successful because I kept writing comedy for what I thought everybody else would think was funny. And it took me a while to get to what do I think is funny? Because it's all about, as he's saying, it's, it's our own point of view. And then as soon as I got that in my head, the writing, it just flowed. But we, everybody has a sense of humor. We'd be dead if we did it because we deal with so much crap on a day-to-day basis and laughter is such a release of that it's just too much to handle and i think i mean laughing feels good too you just release all that stuff you let everything go that's in your head but yeah you can you could pretty much make everything funny in writing even if it's really serious you guys can throw some of your writing samples at us and we'll try to make it into a funny dialogue for you. <laughs> if anybody's wor- yeah, Anybonics. <laughs> if anybody's work anything. Um, I think it depends on and I guess I'm going to disagree a little bit. I think it depends on what kind of writing you're doing cuz for like stand up, it's got to be punchline focused. I mean it really it kind of does cuz and even it's kind of where it changes is how you find your own unique way to do punchlines. Everybody's not, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um. Some people are that. Um, my friend Ben Roy is. He doesn't. He always says he doesn't have punchlines, but he absolutely does. He'll just mine. He'll come with. Uh, we call them Ben Royisms, to, and he'll just mine the description of a thing, and that'll be the punchline. So like if he. Like he has a joke where he's describing like uh, these old white women that he's seen in a coffee shop, and he describes them as a uh, bleach blonde khaki raisins, right? So that's that's a punchline, but it's descriptive. So you can do that. You can mine that. You can mine description. 
you can uh, description is a great way to do it, but I do think that stand up really has to be kind of punchy. Even uh, even Hicks is punchy. Like they're all they're all kind of punchy. I think when you're writing like comedy sort of literature, you have more room to sort of play with the situation uh, rather than. But stand up's got to be. I mean, you're up there for however much time you are, and it's you need to be getting laughs most of that. Even during stories, you're going to talk about you know this this that. You're going to change things. You're going to make things up and try to make it punchy. That's just kind of what you're going to do. I was telling I was telling them earlier. Denver has a lot of like alt shows that we do around town. We may do uh, there's one called Arguments and Grievances. That's comedy debates. And we'll be given like two topics, and then you debate with the other person, right? But it's got to be funny. You can't just talk about why, you know, chai tea is better than like Bruce Lee. Like, you can't just talk about that straight, right? Like, who wants to watch that? <laughs> be horrible. Instead, you like have to, so you have to write a bunch of punchlines, or even um, we did uh, competitive erotic fan fiction the other day. <laughs> Which is it's fan fiction, but you take characters and then you make them do the dirtiest things you can, and that's like the thing. I did the Raven, right? And it was basically just the character furiously masturbating in his chambers to the thought of his lost Lenore, and then the Raven keeps breaking his concentration. Is the idea? <laughs> that was the idea of it. Now it's still punchy and it's written, you know, I wrote it in the same kind of like way that it's written that the poem goes, but it's still got punchlines in it. They're just filthy. So it just depends on cuz you need that sort of rolling laughter kind of thing. You need people to be going from laugh to laugh and that's what they expect. I think it's different when people are reading. Um so I think it kind of depends on what you're doing. But I, I could say, you know, mind description, things like that. Those are great things to do. Any questions? Right. It seems like a bad example, too. It's still coming on you just saying something that, like, masturbating and, like, then getting distracted with a to-do list and having to, like, start back over at the whole script line or whatever. Like, it's just sort of saying something that everybody's Everyone's been there, you know. You know, like, 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 yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, it's kind of the idea of anything sexual, people are going to be a little, but if, the idea is to go farther, you know, and I guess that's kind of back on the topic of what's too far, because like, that crowd loved it, like, it's a competition, I won, it was disgusting, it was horrible, if I read it in here, you people would be throwing Birkenstocks at me, like, it would be, like, <laughs> Don't dare me. <laughs> I swear I will close. It's on my phone. I will close with it. And then I will never be able to show my face in here again. But I almost want to do it now. I swear to God. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know what? I take your challenge. 
I take your challenge. And you know what? I'm going to let you judge my writing and everything. And then I'm going to watch as some of you leave. <laughs> Gradually. Just walk out. <laughs> and then I'm going to, I really want to hear about the letters that they receive about it. Um, so maybe at the end of the panel, I will read it. <laughs> this is such a bad idea. <laughs> this is such a bad idea. But all right, we'll do it. I like it. I like where your head's at. <laughs> and for all you writers, I'm sure you know this, but improv is such an amazing way to just free your mind, and it helped me so much with writing. You don't have to be funny. You just get up and take an improv class if you feel blocked in some way. But I highly recommend it. You know how married we get to our words, too. I can't tell you how many times I've like been so insistent on using this one word in a script. No matter what, you're going to have that word in. <laughs> but that's always funny in itself. <laughs> Some stupid word that you can't let go of. <laughs> I want to hear some of your comedy. Does anybody have any comedy paragraphs they want to read from their script? Nobody no, will do that. they won't. Okay. But it, we'll do you, sign do a people waiver. do have questions. We're, yeah. we're happy to take questions. I have a about snark uh yeah the internet has really <clears throat> kind of impa- it's like snark if snark is sort of this ectoplasm that's sort of out there in the world it's like the internet just it was just the perfect little petri dish <sighs> because you no longer have to face people you know you can just in total anonymity uh grind whatever acts you have with whoever it is like read the comment section of anything it could be like gardening tips, how to grow your tomatoes. Like, oh, this fucking dick, he's probably got a tomato up his butt. You know, it's just like, really? You're like that angry and sort of fucked up about tomatoes and gardening tips? <laughs> All the free-floating rage and grievance of the universe is in those comment sections. Um, and I think like for, for me as a writer, there is this site Gawker that's kind of dedicated to the aggrieved writers and people in publishing in New York. And it's like all the super ambitious, thwarted people in New York have a place where they can experience the modern sport of schadenfreude. <laughs> Look at this writer, such a dickhead, whatever. Can you tell that Gawker has written badly about me? Is it, is it coming through that that's where, what this is about? Um, and... I do think that people find that funny, and I do think that that site, there are people who have a good wit. I think they put that wit in the service of uh, a kind of small-heartedness. It could still be funny, and you could still laugh at it, but it's not a laugh of forgiveness. It's a laugh of vengeance. Hey, that's a particular kind of laugh, too. People are sadistic and petty. That's part of, our, that's part of the human arrangement. But the comics, I think, that endure 
are the ones who are able to uh, who are who are aiming at uh, our, how we're fallen as people like the stuff that we have in common that is really deeply tragic any of the com- you know shakespeare's comedies the divine comedy which is not at all funny but it's it's he was he meant it to be um <laughs> It isn't, because he was so furious. I mean, that whole poem comes out of, like, I was kicked out of Florence, and I'm going to fantasize about all the motherfuckers who did it to me and put them in hell and boil them in oil. Ah, ha, ha. It's like, wow, super funny, Dante. Like, I'm sure he gave that to his pals. It was like, you're going to, this is the funniest thing ever. And they were like, wow, Dante, you should get on the Internet. Um, you know, there's a funny story about Kafka, because he is so funny, um, but he gave the story, the metamorphosis, to a friend of his. He'd just written it. It's the one where the guy wakes up as an insect and, you know, str- struggles to get himself right. It's like a human being turned into an insect. And people read it as this parable of, like, the extreme alienation of modern man and capitalism. So, and when Kafka brought it to his friend, he was reading it to his friend, and he literally thought it was so fucking funny that he would start laughing uncontrollably, like Christine at a funeral, <laughs> and would literally have to walk around the block just going, ah, however Kafka laughed. And his friend is like, this is super fucking weird and depressing, but Kafka was just could not contain himself how funny he found it. <clears throat> I'm in just a little cul-de-sac. I have no idea. What's that? Keep going, right? Straight into the... I had a point. Um, But it's gone. Snark, yeah. Yeah. Only that when I hear snark, like, I'm subject to it, but when I... It's like a laugh that you're ashamed of. Not a laugh that's like, yes, I take part in that's made me more human and I've released all the toxins. It's more like, ooh, those toxins are awesome. Give me a little extra. Give me some funny toxins. But, you know, you can't tell somebody if they're laughing. You're laughing is mean. But I think instinctually we know if people are making mean-spirited jokes. And I think they work in a limited way. But in the end, they're not the things that people remember. Because there's no deeper human insight. Or the insight is a kind of, um, is predicated on a shared cruelty rather than a shared humanity. That'd be the way to say it. I don't particularly care for that, but that's just my opinion. I don't like the mean-spirited humor. And again, that doesn't mean it isn't funny. I write things that aren't funny all the time. I was cracking myself up writing about the top ten destinations to be raped the other day and thinking that was hilarious. But (laughs) I didn't do it on stage. I was just thinking of a new travel show. (laughs) And just writing down, cracking myself up. But knowing, knowing it's, that's not something that I want to do or represent myself as. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Maui. (laughs) That's number seven? Was Maui? Yeah. You know, you can go there otherwise. <laughs> um, I actually kind of like, I actually like snark stuff. I actually like, I like, you know, the jab of it. 
Like, uh, if you ever seen um, the Jezelnik offensive on Comedy Central, it's Anthony Jezelnik. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he uh, he was always he would always do like the Comedy Central roasts, and he was great at them because Jezelnik is vicious, like vicious. It's the best, and I I love that because especially those roast shows because the person that's getting ripped is right there. You know, like Flavor Flav has to sit there and watch it happen. <laughs> it's the best. But I kind of, I get that, like, that's not for everybody. But I think that writing that kind of stuff is a skill. It's not, you know, the easiest thing to do to write something that's that harsh and that cutting and is still really, really funny. That's actually a really difficult thing to do, you know. Like, a pie in the face is always funny, but nobody's really getting hurt, right? But, like, writing something that compl- that makes fun of somebody not having a career anymore or something like that is, like, viciously cutting. It's so good. I would, I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I would only say to check out the show because uh, then you'll get examples of what I mean. I wish I could think of one of his jokes that's... Um, that's would be a good example of it, but just try to think of the meanest thing you could say about a celebrity or somebody in the news, and that is basically what it would be. The meanest thing. Well, I don't know about that. I will actually. I'm going to hand it back over to you. I'm going to see if I can find one on my phone. I'm going to see if I can find a Jezelnik thing because it's vicious. It's so good. It's so great. Well, so one thing I'd say is, like, part of what comedy's purpose is is to be anarchic. It's like the part of your mind and your thinking that's not appropriate. It's totally inappropriate to think rape destinations. Like, that's... But that's how we think. We're not just a superego. And, like, the thing that released... The guy like Philip Roth from a certain kind of propriety and obedience. I mean, he writes Goodbye Columbus, and it's a great uh, book with great novella and great stories. But he doesn't become Philip Roth until he writes Portnoy's Complaint, until he starts talking about whacking off into the liver, until he releases all the crazy, the id that's in there. What I would say is I'm less interested in the crazy that's aimed at celebrities or any of the other low-hanging fruit out there. I'm much more interested in and kind of moved by and and implicated by like the Louis C.K.'s who are saying, I am the pathetic person. I am the person who cannot make it through the next moment because I'm so you know flush with self-loathing. But I also get the appeal of a perfectly vicious, sadistic comment about somebody because that is a part of us too. We can try to disavow it, but, you know, we all have the impulse to say the perfectly sadistic thing or wish we could. So we enjoy when comedians are, like, just brutal because we want to be like that with usually our family members. I'm going to return to this, (laughs) right? Oh, if only. Or people who have broken up with us or whoever it is. We all have people who we would love to be able to roast in that way. And so to see somebody come up with something so precisely and surgically sadistic is very gratifying to a very small shriveled part of us. Right. Yeah, question. I just have a question. I'm curious to know if any of you have written a script. You know, we were told in school that you should write a script 
had, if we were angry with somebody or we had, were having problems, so we should just turn it into a humorous situation. So have you ever created a script where you really were mad, you took characters where you were really mad at each other and tried to make it humorous? I just want to know this because I don't know if this really works in life. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I, I can give you an example. I get a lot of hate mail because I write political stuff. And I get a lot of hate mail that's really, really super hate mail. Yeah. So I have this little book. Where is it here? It's, it was in my pocket. Oh, there it is. It's called Letters from People Who Hate Me. It's got blurbs on the back. Please commit suicide with a hammer or nail gun. That's the first blurb. It says what they're saying about the author. And they're actual real letters. And I respond to them. So I'll read one that's an example, I think, of what you're trying to talk about, right? Because it's possible to sort of um, take anger and respond to it in a way that, that isn't meeting the anger. Um, Almond Joy, I would like to buy a copy of your book. The name of the person I'm buying this book for is Lick My Balls, You Fag! It's in capital letters in bold, so I'm not, I'm not just screaming Lick My Balls, You Fag, which I do. But it's actually here. I'd like the inscription to say, I'm a fucking liberal coward. Okay? That's a letter I received. We've all been there. <laughs> so here's my response. Dear, lick my balls, you fag. <laughs> Thanks for your request. It is always inspiring to hear from readers. I'm curious about your name. It sounds Scottish. Okay. Uh, another short one. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, hey, asshole. Saw where you resigned, uh, resigning from BC because your feelings are hurt due to Condi Rice speaking at the commencement. What's the matter? Upset she has bigger balls than you? You are such a sanctimonious hypocrite. You're a typical lib, racist, judgmental, hypocritical, and amoral. Fuck you, Nathan Scott. Okay. Dear Nathan. It is painful to hear you say it so pointedly, but you're right. Condoleezza Rice does have bigger balls than me. I realize you may find this entertaining... You probably sit around with your buddies and make jokes about his almond and his tiny little chickpea testicles. But I want you to consider how it would feel if you were the one whose balls were smaller than our female Secretary of State. What would it be like to move through the world in this kind of doubt? Like, suppose you're at some party and you're making a play for this hot chick and suddenly she mentions how good the homemade sushi is and you think, yeah, sushi, rice, ooh, condi balls. <laughs> and then how does that make you feel? Or say you actually manage to get this girl home and you get to the point where the clothes come off and she looks down at your junk and she gets this expression on her face and suddenly you know exactly what she's thinking. She's thinking, what are those things? Oh Christ, are those his balls? Look, Nathan, all I can do is appeal to your mercy as a fellow dude. One who probably at some point in his life has felt doubts about his own testicular endowment. It's an awkward thing to bring up another man's genitals. This isn't easy. <laughs> Whatever, it goes on. But 
the, and the letters get worse and worse. They get more and more crazy and violent. And to me, like, you never respond. That's like fabulous material. That rage, the only appropriate, w- it's a gift. Exactly. My wife's like, oh my God, there's a Marine who wants to kill you. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> You know, this is good. We're going to, you can't meet them with fire. You have to, you know, throw a pie at them, whatever the terrible metaphor is. And kind of back to your question, um, as a staff writer, we had a comedy developer at DreamWorks that was not funny at all in the staff writer's opinions, <laughs> but he would just buy these awful ideas and then throw it in the room and we had to make it into episodes. Like one was called how to get laid in college, which I'm pretty sure he probably bought one night when he was drunk and out with his buddies. Wait, somebody paid him. Somebody paid. No, he paid. He paid an extraordinary amount of money for this idea. Yeah. And we were so we instead of trying to make it humorous we did everything we could not to out of anger we we had to make 12 episodes out of it and it ended up being hilarious we were trying so hard to make it not funny like we made the main character a a pakistani prodigy that taught driver's ed and just all these ridiculous things to protest it and it ended up being hilarious (laughs) so our genius is mine. No. <laughs> no. But so we tried to do the reverse of what you said, but end up being funny. Um, I would just say from stand-up, I think that's kind of, it's kind of interesting to listen to those letters because it's very much like dealing with hecklers because the second you get mad, you lose. Like, you can't get mad because the audience is watching you and they're watching the person that's yelling at you. They're watching both. And if you start to like get mad and like show that it's really bothering you and they go, Oh, he's funnier than the guy on. And then you start to lose them. Like they're paying attention. So it's, it's kind of like you have to do that. It's like uh, it's like bugs bunny, like bugs bunny is the perfect example of, you know, the, the other characters get furious at him and he just is just lightly brushing them off, right? It's just parries the whole time. It's kind of got to be like that. Do you have a Heckler story? Um, let me think. We get, we get so many of them that I don't really even think about it so much anymore. I don't really, have, I don't really tend to get the ones that get mad at me. Um, I, get like, I get like just random drunken yelling. <laughs> I get a lot of that. Uh, I remember there were, but then sometimes other stuff happens. Like we used to do shows at the uh, Squire Lounge over here on Colfax, on Colfax and Williams, and it's the dirtiest dive bar, just horrible. And the whole idea of the place was that it was supposed to be the toughest mic that you could go to, and so the crowd was just like homeless people and drunks and hipsters. <laughs> And there was, like, lots of drugs in there. It was really, really rough. And so you never knew. Like, basically, we'd be like, well, I'm glad nobody threw a bottle. That was good. (laughs) It was good. Nobody chucked anything. That was pretty good. But you would have people get mad and climb up stage, like, wait for people after. I believe one friend got, like, grabbed by the throat by, like, a Vietnam vet once. Uh, People climbing on stage wanting to fight you. I never really had that because... I just don't, I tend to get just the drunken stuff. Like, my stuff isn't, doesn't tend to be that harsh. 
But other guys are really good at just flaying people. Flaying people. Um, Greg, my friend Greg Baumhauer, vicious. A lot of C-bombs come out of Greg when that happens. A whole lot of them. I personally, I just kind of parry. Like, I'll just be like, wow, lady, you're really wasted. Like, that kind of thing. Like, just because they know, the crowd knows. And as long as I'm in control, it's fine. It's the, it's the second that you start to be, because you can knock them down easy because you've got a microphone. And so if somebody yells, you know, like, oh, that's not, like, that's not funny or whatever, you can just kind of go, well, everybody else laughed. So something's wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I might just go, I might go, well, that's interesting. Everybody else laughed. Uh, so I guess, you know, maybe they're just not as drunk as you. Or, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can say. Because they've already, if you're winning everybody else, when you're in trouble is if you're eating it hard. <laughs> if you're, like, bombing and then somebody's like, you, you kind of suck, then that's just, you just got a deal. <laughs> I had a friend, uh, <clears throat> I had a friend one time at the improv who was eating he was dying absolutely it was so funny because we all love we, we all love watching our friends bomb like it's the most fun thing ever <laughs> and so my friend is uh he's he was opening for norm mcdonald and he was just just falling on his face he was dying so hard and at one point this lady just goes please get off the stage <laughs> And he had to do three more minutes. He didn't even get to leave. Because you can't leave. Like, if you, you can't, if it's going really badly, you just have to finish. Like, it doesn't work like that. Like, if you're dying and you're supposed to do half an hour and they hate you in five minutes, then you've just got to do 25 minutes of them hating you. I had a, I, I opened for, um, I did this thing where I was, it was like 15 minutes at this, uh, it was like the Westminster Events Chateau, because my career is pretty amazing. So, and it's all these elderly Italians, like, it, that's what it was, they have like a game, it was like a club, and they like play some game, and so it's all these elderly Italians, because when you think... Who it might have been? Yeah, it was like yeah, it was like a like a card game or something. I don't know, maybe I don't know some kind of game they were really into, and uh, it was the worst situation. And they absolutely hated me because you know, I mean, who would figure that elderly Italians would hate this guy, right? <laughs> who would ever? But they requested me, so I go to this thing, and it's the worst setup. It, the average age in the room got to be seventy five, probably older. It's really old and. Oh my god. I didn't even do any Facebook material. I didn't get that far. I just you just settled in. But <laughs> it was so it's like you get there and before we go up, the guy who's organizing it starts talking about how his he's like, "Oh, you guys know my father just died and uh this was his favorite dinner jacket. I'm wearing his favorite jacket. And he had comedy everybody. Vinny Montes. <laughs> so then my friend Vinny goes up and just dies. <laughs> and my friend Elliot goes up and Elliot does all right. And I go up and they've got like those big like tables with like the white tablecloths, the big round ones. And yeah, banquet tables, wood floors, baby grand piano to the side of the stage and then they've got like string lighting around the room and there's a bar at the back 
And I thought, you know, sometimes crowds like it when you mess with them or whatever. So I get up there and I go, yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, This is my first cruise ship. Audible gasp in the room. Like, like audible. They hate me instantly. Hate. And I could see them like looking at each other, like talking. The kids' table to the left, dying. Like, it's just like their kids that are like in their 30s, and there's like six of them, and they're cracking up. And their, their parents hate my guts. And I had to do 15 more minutes <laughs> just with them staring at me, <laughs> just hating me. And then we got paid, and we ran away. That's basically what happened. It's the way it goes. And I've been heckled too. <laughs> it's always a, sometimes it's just a total shock, which it's supposed to be because you're, you're so in your head, you're doing your act and then someone yells something out and I had a guy yell out, show me your tits, which, and it shouldn't have thrown me, but it really did. But luckily I came back with, oh, Uncle Matt or something else. <laughs> Crazy Uncle Matt. <laughs> because for that moment, I, I was in such shock thinking, I'm not going to recover from this. And when when we're on stage, when you stop talking or you can't think of something, like that second seems like an eternity. Usually it isn't. But you know, that, that heckling is good, though. It definitely keeps you on your toes. And uh, I don't get it too bad as much as my other comic friends. Just my stuff is pretty clean. It's all about like moving from Beverly Hills to Brighton to become famous. And I talk about that a lot because everyone's like, why are you here? But, but people definitely relate to that because it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Do you have any more heckling stuff? Heckleman? Uh, I think that's. I think everybody has to deal with hecklers their own way. It partly, so much of it is your own stage persona. The more you do it, the more you become you, and how you deal with it is how you deal with it. I'm nice, and I don't really get harsh stuff, so I don't have to be very mean. I'm not very good at being mean, and I don't really like being mean, so I don't really do it. I have friends that are great at it. Um, again, my friend Ben Roy, one of my one of the fav- one of my favorite. Uh, heckler lines I've ever heard was he he got heckled I remember at the downtown club he got heckled by some woman and she was saying something and he was like oh that's uh what what do you do what do you do oh you're a teacher that's funny you seem like more of a bitch (laughs) like just stuff like I'm not that guy (laughs) he's great if I did that they wouldn't the crowd would be like like they would turn on me because of my style because it's I can't there's just certain you have to know those kind of things if I get mean crowds don't like me to be mean they don't they don't like to see that from me just because of my style so if I start to get mean then I'll lose the room they'll turn on me just because that's not you know I've got to be lighter with it and sort of you know and there's other friends that are like that too then there's other ones that are like Ben, they're great at going at it, but his style is very aggressive, and so it's different, and they expect it from him, and they like it, and the whole thing. So you just have to know who you are and how you come across, and that's all stuff that you just learn by doing it, honestly. It's a lot of trial and error. That's just the way it goes. Well, I'm not funny, um, but <laughs> Evening, 
I just want to give you credit for the awesome insinuation. <laughs> you want to fucking get back on script? Okay. <laughs> no, take something where you had an idea, you tried it out, it turned out not to be funny, but you went back and did X, whatever you did, if you did. Did you come up with ways that would turn in to funny material, stuff that you had hoped was like that, but hadn't first worked like that? Well, I think the the problem is that you're talking about a conscious effort to be funny. Like, I wanted to work this material to make it funny. And for me, anyway, that's... Whenever I really set out to be funny, that has to do with entertaining the audience. It's kind of predicated in a certain about its insecurity, essentially. Like, I just want to entertain the audience. And I don't think that's actually where, for me anyway, that's not where funny stuff comes from. Funny stuff comes from me... Uh, it's sort of th- that comic impulse arises when I'm looking at stuff that I'm actually quite made, dis- you know, made uncomfortable by. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm angry about it. I'm kind of mixed up about it. And the comedy is there to sort of f- uh, forgive me as I'm as I'm looking back at that stuff. So when I have tried to be funny, like I remember trying to write something, that was like it's crazy being a dad poop that's crazy diapers totally crazy you know it's just it was flat because it was predicated on not purging me but trying to entertain the reader i think it's like self-consciousness it's the death of art you 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 cannot have an intention to try to be funny on the page because all the reader is going to pick up on is your desperate effort to be funny Yes. Yeah, well, that was my natural impulse to be like, oh, like if somebody said to me, if I was heckled, if I was a stand up comic, which I wouldn't be, it's too hard, it's terrifying. Because my job as a writer, like, I don't, people could be like, this guy sucks, and I never hear about it. Comedians are like, you know, if people aren't laughing, you suck, and you're sucking in real time in a room with old Italian guys. So, but, you know, uh, when I have, if it, I have the leisure as a writer of, of being able to not sort of have to face that in the moment. What I, when I try, you know, extremely hard at anything to be, to have a particular effect, tragedy or comedy, it never winds up coming off. Those letters were just intuitively how I realized I wanted to respond. If somebody in the audience said, you're not funny, I would be like, you're right. I've made a bad mistake, but now we're stuck with it, folks. You're, you know what I mean? That would be my natural response, would be to say, you are confirming what, I am, what the voice inside me is saying at almost all times. That's just my persona, right? I'm not the person who would be like, kind of try to parry it. I'm not the person who would have a quick comeback. I'd be like, you're right. You say I have small balls, and you're correct. And I live with this every day. Do you see what I mean? That's naturally, that was, that was how I adapted to getting knocked around as a youngest sibling in a pretty sadistic family. So I was like, yep, you know what? You know how I'm going to solve this problem? I hate myself more than you can hate me. That's how I see marriage. Marriage is a process whereby two people go slowly crazy together. 
until they hate each other just as much as they hate themselves. That's marriage to me. That, that's an appropriate marriage vow. Right? That's just the way I think. That's, you know what I mean? Newlyweds, right? <laughs> I think very different. Horrified, like, that's fucked up. And I have, it's, it's just, it's trial and error. I've written plenty of stuff that is not funny that I thought was funny and plenty of jokes. I, I did so many jokes on that, those chicken soup for the soul books with different names that, that for me was so funny chicken soup for the soulless soul. And I went on and on, but it just, it was so funny to me. Soup for Della soul. <laughs> you know, it's just, it just depends. Sometimes it's the audience, but it's, it's just, like I said, trial and error, just just doing it, taking a risk, and seeing what works. There's plenty of stuff I say that isn't funny, except just to me. But one of the things that was interesting is Christine was talking about, oh, we like set out to not be funny. You know, that's like when you—it's regression in the service of the ego. You, you, if you're trying desperately to find your keys, you're not going to find your keys. Go off and try to masturbate, and then you'll like remember where your keys are and be like, "Okay, I got to stop masturbating." That's really how it works. If you're consciously trying to be funny, I think it really, you know, scotches. But fantasize that the keys are that to a Mercedes. Again, I I think this is. uh, It depends on the medium that you're working in, because I do think that's you know that's part of stand up is a lot of times you sit with your friends and then you throw punchlines back and forth about a squirrel like it's stupid it's not it's not that it's brilliant stuff but it's that's what it is it's sitting at a taco place and you know like i, I had this idea about this like what do you think of this blah, blah, blah. and then you just work through it or um other stuff that's that's kind of it's such a different thing even just comedy writing like if you're trying to write jokes for stand-up it's because it has to be that i mean if you're doing i think like with writing a book it's like a thing where if it's funny page five and then it's funny again page 10 and this story's interesting in between well that's fine people like this is a funny book but it took 10 minutes to go from page 5 to page 10. And on stage, if you got a laugh at page 5 and page 10, people were like, that guy sucked. So like, it, 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 because it's, it's expected that it has to be that way. So I kind of think it's, um, that medium is, is just different. And I think you, if you recognize, I think that that's part of the thing. You know, and part of it is forcing it, not forcing it, but working through it. And sometimes with stand up, it is like a thing where you kind of have to go, I'm going to have to leave this for a while. And then you come back to it later. It may solve itself. You may just try it on stage. Sometimes you just go up and you go, I don't have an end for this, and I'm going to throw it out there. And you just do it and just see if something comes to you improvisationally. But it is very focused on trying to, like, I got to get laughs. Like, I I need to be getting laughs in here. That's And the only real way to do that is to sort of focus on that and spend the time on it, you know?
stories that get into the press market, you know, that kind of thing. And um, my impression is that you might be able to get away more with stand-up, so, um, like, I don't, you know, rape is not funny to me, but I would sit here, you know, at your show, and you could go through your 10 places, and I'd be kind of, uh, and you'd go on, and it would just go on. But mm -hmm. if I saw that in writing, like in a book, I, I just wouldn't even continue. So you find, you know, can you speak a little to that? And how do you, but what if you want to transgress about rape in writing, mm -hmm. you know, right. how would you address it? Well, stand, you're right. Stand-up, you can get away with so much more. Like, I came... I haven't done stand-up for that long. It's been comedy writing, improv, sketch. And like I said, I, I came into this comedy world with so many rules, and they were kind of thrown out. It's just, it just depends on, you know, everybody's sense of humor and what feels right to you versus writing in a book you review that over and over and, and edit it and edit it. And, uh, yeah, so I think there's a kind of a different sense of humor there. Or say, right. Well, being a stand up is hard. And so many times before I go on stage, I'm like, why do I do this? Like what? Who who wants to do this? I do, but but then it's great when you come off and getting closer to it. I just I think just like it's apples and oranges. Just I mean, writing you can really explain too. Explain the joke. Explain the talk about a scenario versus on stage you're just punching it and you got to pop it fast. Otherwise, people are going to be bored. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is this incredible pressure that comics are under. You know why you're in the room. I mean, to me, I think of it as like a comic is the person who is just running amok. The comic is giving voice to all the shit that is inside you. And you, and by the way, usually, hopefully, people are drunk at these. They're drunk in a club. I mean, they better fucking be drunk. That's the whole point of those things. That's how they get. You want them drunk. Believe me. Have another drink, ma'am. It'll be funnier. Now, that is very different than even the word literary is a buzzkill, right? And I'm supposedly literary, and it's just, you know, there's a kind of self-seriousness about it. And for this reason, and I find it, especially in New York, New York crowds are super self-conscious and, like, one of those crowds that I would imagine would be horrible for a comic because they're so self-conscious about, like, is that funny? Should I be laughing at that? You know, they're kind of looking around. But... You know, I, the reason I l love comics is because they do what I think a part of me would like to do, not have to worry about literary respectability and how this prose is and how it's shaped and is it really deep and moving and all that shit, but just pop, pop, pop. Let's fucking, fu let, let me run amok here. But more than a lot of other writers, like he's a super tall midget, you know? I mean... <laughs> Okay? Like, he's a funny writer. It's like, yeah, that almond. But in the world of comedians, it's like, you're kind of sad. Go write a book. You know? So if... And that's... I'm not trying to put a dig at myself, but it's just a different crowd. And when I hang out with, like, comedians and see what they do, and, you know, they are all about bam, 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 find the funny. And that's not 
your job as a as a writer. You are definitely trying to find the the comic elements in things. I think that helps your uh, it, it it's entertains the audience, but it's also a way of getting at the truth. But ultimately, what you're trying to do is get at some truth, and that's more important than the laugh. These guys just work in a different. They have a different uh, currency, and the currency is: Are they laughing? Period. Um, and that's kind of like oppressive, but it's also very liberating. You don't have to worry about like, oh, was that a literary joke? Was that highbrow enough? You know? Yes. Um, I just wanted to say something. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Daily, the Daily Show. He might not go far enough, but I thought it was very interesting. I have a bunch of young people. That's how they watch the news. Mm-hmm. It's the only news I watch. And over, I mean, now over 50% of Americans get their news on comedy news. And so I think it's pretty <laughs> so cool, though. It is cool and sad. I've been to political things where you listen to one person say something, and then you come back next week, and they're saying the exact opposite thing, and that they never yeah. said the other thing they said before. And it's really frustrating. And it's, it's, it's very cool that, that they, they started doing that, and I think it needs to be built upon. I hope that they, like what you, you said, you know, that, that maybe someone will start going a little bit further. I'm not going to disagree with you, but you know what I think would be really cool? Mm-hmm. If the news programs covered the actual news. Yeah. <laughs> okay? What distresses me is not John Stewart. He's an incredibly talented comedian with a talented staff and so forth. It's that he's the moral backstop of our culture. Like that the fourth estate is so crippled in this kind of frenzy, the stimulation game. They have no internal moral compass anymore. So it's just easy pickings for him. And he, what he's done since we have Obama, who's really basically a kind of dull Republican, frankly, in his policies. He's just a technocratic guy who's trying to solve the problems of the population. There's nothing there. There's no hypocrisy and no, uh, there's, there's nothing that gets on John Stewart's radar. So his show is mostly now about the absurdity of the media and especially the conservative media. That's mostly what he goes after because he's just interested in who's being a hypocrite, who's being a phony, who's lying. But it is quite sad that he's the moral backstop. My problem isn't so much with him as the culture around him. Like, whatever happened to, oh, say, the fourth estate, the people's representative in Washington, right? So that, that's my beef again. And now it's going to be a debate. Okay. Uh, no, 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 not at all. I was just uh, going to say that uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography has a great thing that maybe the media ought to go read. It's only a couple of pages long mm-hmm. on the duty of the media. Right. And, and we don't do that at all. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Mencken is another guy who, you know, Mencken was talking about this constantly, that we are at the mercy of the quacks unless there is a set of responsible, morally grounded individuals who are calling out the quacks, right? So, yeah. Because you can't stand to watch the real thing. But you know what they're saying when you watch him? Uh, Andre, we're out of time. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you so much. And um, thank you all.
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.